Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church in Jersey. I'm going to read you a couple of jokes. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None. They always use candles. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the light bulb and nine to say how much they liked the old one. How many TV evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but for the light bulb to continue, you must send in your donation immediately. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? (laughs) How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. God is predestined when the light shall come on. And how many Charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? That's us, by the way. Ten. One to change the light bulb and nine to bind the spirit of darkness. (laughs) So Jesus gathers together his disciples for a last supper. And in the book of John in the Bible, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, detail what happened during that last supper. We've been doing a series of sermons called Table Talk, where we look at this Last Supper of Jesus, and it was an important event because it was the Last Supper. He was about to be crucified and to leave the earth, and there were some important things that he wanted to do and to say. He wanted to eat and have a a fun fellowship, wonderful time with his disciples, but there were some very important things he wanted to say and do. And so we've been looking at these. We've split them into four categories, the food, the drink, the venue, and the atmosphere or the fellowship. And we're going through those, not exactly in that order, but we've spoken about the venue, the church. We've spoken a little bit about the drink and the wine. We've spoken a bit about the fellowship and how last week James spoke about how Jesus took his outer garments on, how we take our pride off and all the things we think are important and we are humble and we don't ask for people to serve us. We want to serve others and then that produces a great atmosphere for fellowship. Um, We're talking next week about Jesus getting crucified and what the, the bread and the wine represent as far as his body and his blood. But today I want to talk about the bread not just uh, about Jesus' body, but also about how that is part of the fellowship, how the, the people get together at a dinner. I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where the food is great, the drink is great, the venue is great, but there's just a, a terrible atmosphere in the room, and so you don't enjoy that, that dinner party. The, the atmosphere amongst the people is so important, isn't it? And we are learning about this because every time we take communion... I don't know if you've been in church for any length of time, but every time you take the bread and the wine, we are supposed to be remembering this, all these principles that Jesus taught in this Last Supper just before he died. And so we are trying to give you as much information about that so that every time you take communion, you remember what it was that Jesus was teaching. So right at the end of the Last Supper, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays. They've just had this wonderful meal And they've just spoken about a whole lot of things. And then Jesus prays. And this is the last prayer. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray on his own. But this is his last prayer together where the disciples are there in the room. And it's significant. What do you think Jesus prayed about the last time he prayed with his disciples? What is it? 
Surely it's important. Jesus is praying. You know, Jesus, whenever he prays, it's a perfect prayer. Amen? When Jesus prays, it's the right prayer. It's what God once prayed. It's the correct prayer. So we must look at Jesus' prayer. We must say, what on earth was so important to him that he prayed it at the end with his disciples all around him at the Last Supper? And that's what I want to look at today. So Lord God, I pray, please open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand, Lord. Please help me and all of us to understand, Lord Jesus, what it was that was on your heart on that night and what is still on your heart today. Wow, I'm just feeling the emotion of the Lord. It's on his heart. It's on his heart. So let's read together. John chapter 17 and verse 20. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone. In other words, for these 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Amen. He was praying for you. Isn't that exciting? And you know, when Jesus prays, you know, God says, yes, I will answer that prayer. You're sure of that. So Jesus prayed for you. Are you interested to know what he prayed? Let's read. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect, made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Friends, it's significant that Jesus prayed for unity in his last prayer. And why did he pray for unity? He prayed for it so that the world may know that Jesus has been sent. How is the world going to find out about Jesus? You know, there's people, even today, in all the flats and the houses around us, who don't know Jesus. They may think they're good enough. They may think, oh, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm sure I'll get into heaven. If they don't know Jesus, they face an eternity away from God. And God cares so much about them. How is He going to show them that He's come? How is He going to reveal Himself to them? The answer is in this prayer. Jesus says, if we are one, they will know. Now that is a surprising statement. I don't know if you agree with me, but I find that surprising. I think if Jesus was going to say, how will they know? It, it would be something like, because you guys have slick, wonderful music, or you're very good at presenting thing, the gospel, or, or you can put great things up on the screen, or, or I don't know, you'll go door to door, or you'll have big evangelistic events. But he said, no, the way the world will know is if we, the church, are unified. And I don't believe we have got there yet. I don't know what you think, but I do not think the world is the church is unified. If you're a visitor here today, you're so welcome. We love to have you. But I wonder if you think we are unified. How would you know we were unified? How would you know that we are one? You know, Jesus said in this Last Supper, He said, they will know you're my disciples by your love. 
There's something supernatural that happens when Christians genuinely love each other and are unified as one. Something supernatural happens where the power and the blessing of God gets poured out. Uh, uh, something amazing, miraculous happens and people see it and they're drawn in and they become Christians. And I don't think we've got there yet. I don't know about you. What do you think? Do you think we're there yet? I mean, we sing songs together. We sing in unison. Some of us are a bit out of tune, but that's not the problem. We meet together. We have the same name. We are whatever church we're in. We have the name of the church. We meet in a building together. We might see each other a little bit in the week in our homes or whatever, but are we really one? And what does it mean to be one? And what about the other churches? Does it mean that all the churches are supposed to meet in one big venue and have one name? Are we all supposed to be in one big denomination? Or what is it? That's why I read that joke earlier, just to show that we have lots of differences in the body of Christ. But what is unity? Does it mean we all just exactly the same? We dress the same? We speak the same? We think and feel the same? Is that what it means? What is unity? It's got to be important because Jesus made it a priority in his very last prayer. It's, it, it's very, very important. And yet my guess is that most of us don't even think about it. And we don't really know what it is. I'd like to read you Psalm 133. And it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. The Spanish version says, Bueno y delicioso. Good and delicious it is when brothers live together in unity. Let me just read it to you in the English in the New King James. Psalm 133 only has three verses. It's a very short little psalm. Behold, how good and how pleasant, how tasty, how delicious it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the, to the edge of his garments. So Aaron was the high priest and the oil was poured on his head to anoint him as priest and it was a sign of the Holy Spirit anointing him and it says as we dwell together in unity, the Holy Spirit is poured out a bit like on a priest and it, dwell, and it goes down onto the whole body from the head all the way to the body. And then he says, it is like the Jew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Hermon was this massive mountain up in the north of, of Israel, which even today, if you go camping there, I've read stories of people who go camping on Mount Hermon, and they wake up in the morning and it hasn't rained, but it, their tent is just drenched as if it had been raining all night because there's so much dew on Mount Hermon. It says it's as if all that dew was running down onto Mount Zion. Hermon's a picture of heaven, the dew of heaven, and it's running down to us. We are Zion. We are the new Jerusalem, the church of God. When there's unity, it's like oil poured down, it's like dew poured out. And then he says, for there the Lord has commanded a blessing. It's already been commanded by God. If the church get in unity, the blessing comes automatically. The dew, the oil, and it's life forevermore. People get saved. <laughs> so what is unity? What is this thing? I'm going to read you a couple of verses, and I pray that the Lord helps us to get it today. Philippians chapter 2. 
Verse 1, therefore, if you have any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and mercy, in other words, if God has done anything good in your life, Paul says, fulfill my joy. Please, please, people, do this thing. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. He says, if God has done anything in your life, please do this one thing. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. Be together. Be united. Can I, you know, I've prayed and thought about this a lot this week. And I'm trying to work out why do I and other Christians struggle with this idea of unity. And can I tell you one of the answers that I came up with is that we think it's just going to happen automatically. We understand unity is good. It brings a blessing. It's wonderful. But we think if I just pitch up a church, unity will just happen. But he says here, Paul says, if you've got anything good from God, do this. In other words, it's something I have to work at. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. Have the same love. And then he goes on in the next verse to tell us what to avoid in order to get unity. He says... Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and becoming a man." In other words, he says, it's selfishness and conceit. It's thinking about myself too much and having selfish ambition, wanting fame and glory for myself. That's what causes a lack of unity. Now, I might step on some toes today, and I apologize if I step on your toes, but the good news is Jesus can heal your toes. Sometimes we have to say things that are hard, Friend, you need to hear this. I'm speaking. I was asking the Lord, who am I speaking to today? He said to me, speak to young baby Christians, people who have just become Christians, to teach them not to fall into all the errors that the older religious people have already fallen into. And I'm not t speaking against anyone here, but we get into habits, don't we? We get into routines that are wrong, and I'm trying to speak to people who have not yet got there to say, don't get into these habits. What are the habits? We go to church, we think it's about me, it's about entertain me. And so if the song isn't exactly like I want it to be, or the, the lady on the front row doesn't wear her hair exactly as I like, we think this is not good. And we get all, we look at ourselves and we get all kind of conceited. Or if I'm not recognized enough, if, if the leaders don't ask me to sing a solo in church, then I'm like, oh, they don't recognize me. And it's all about me, me, me. He says, that's the reason there's no unity. If we would just humble ourselves and say, it's not about me. In other words, let me just say it this way. Unity, please hear me. Unity, in other words, the, the bigger picture of the body of Christ being one is more important than my personal preferences or my personal happiness. Now that is a slap in the face for many of us Western Christians, isn't it? We get so offended, so easily. 
Oh, she said the wrong thing. He looked at me wrong. He did the wrong thing. He speaks too loud, speaks too soft, sings too loud, sings too... Whatever it is, we get so offended. And actually what he's saying here is, no, no, please. Unity. Make an effort to keep unity over and above your personal preferences and your personal need for position and profile. Wow. I'm challenged, are you? Let me read you another verse. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bear with one another in love. In other words, he's saying that there's a place where somebody offends me, but for the sake of unity, I'm willing to let it go. I'm willing to bear with one another. I'm willing to overlook and compromise and make allowances for and take the humble position. Even though somebody's been horrible to me, even though somebody's done me wrong or done somebody else wrong, I'm willing to let it go. Why? For the sake of unity. And listen to what he says next. Endeavoring. Several other versions. I looked this up and four other versions say, instead of endeavoring, they say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does it sound like to you when I say make every effort? Does that sound like something that's just going to happen automatically? It's hard work. And it's worth it because the unity of the church and presenting to the world this, this love that we have for each other is more important than my own personal offense. Amen? Great. Let me just read you a couple of verses about, about communion. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7, 17. I hope you're with me so far. I'm going to bring it to a conclusion a little bit later. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17 says this, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Whenever we take communion, he says in this verse, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. What we're saying when I take communion is just like a loaf of bread has been broken up into lots of little pieces, and I'm eating one little piece of that loaf, we, as we take communion, are saying, I am part of a body. I'm not an individual. It's not just me. It's not all about me. It's not about my preferences and whether things are exactly as I want them. I am part of something bigger. And it's not just a, a human organization. It's the body of Christ. And so I'm willing to subjugate my own desires and my own preferences. We are one body. But then listen to this shocking verse. The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Well, the end of 29, he says, You are not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and many have fallen asleep or have died. This is a shock to me. Right after Paul has said to the Corinthian church, when you take communion, you are one loaf, you are one body. It's not just you on your own visiting and having a little bit of bread and, and wine. He says, you, you're saying I'm part of something bigger. And he said to these Corinthian Christians, you are not recognizing the body of Christ when you have communion. Because what was happening is they were getting together and they were being selfish. 
Some of them were taking lots of the bread and not leaving enough for others. And, and they were just ignoring each other. They weren't considering that they were part of the body. He says, you're not recognizing the body when you have communion. And for this reason, a shocking verse. Some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died. How do we interpret that verse? What do we do with that verse? Do we say that was just something for that particular church because God was angry with the Corinthians? Do we say that that was a special little circumstance because it only applied to them and, and it was in the Bible times and it doesn't apply to us? Or do we say that when I take communion or when I get together with other Christians, if I don't recognize the body of Christ, the unity above myself, there's a chance that I have bodily sickness and that I may die prematurely. This is a shock, isn't it? I mean, how many of us have heard that phrase? Well, when it's my time, it's my time. When my number's up, my number's up. If God wants me to die, he'll take me home. That's not what happened to the Corinthians. A lot of them died before God wanted them to die. Why? Because they were coming to this holy moment where we're supposed to treat the body of Christ as such an important thing. Unity as more important than anything else. And they were saying, ah, it's all about me. I don't care about sister so-and-so. Who cares if she gets any bread? Shocking. So what is unity? I've got a lot of verses here, but I'm going to just... I'm going to try and make it practical. I, I want to try and make this practical for us. Does this mean that all churches are supposed to meet together? No. In the Bible times, Paul was all about, let's plant more churches, lots of churches. And each church had an eldership and a leadership, and they were a body together, a local church, and they achieved something in that area. God wants lots of churches. Does God want all the churches to be the same? No. You know, we can reach Jersey better if there's a Radio 1 type church, which plays really vibey music, a Radio 2 type church, where there's kind of interviews and gentle music, a Radio 3 type church, where there's mostly songs from the 70s and 80s, or a Radio 4 type church, and all the different spectrums of church, where some dress in you know, suits and dog collars, some dress casual, some dress brilliant like me, some dress different <laughs> ways. We want all the different types of churches. The more types of churches we have, the more people we can reach for Christ. The more different flavors of church. You know, I wish there were a thousand churches in Jersey. People say to me, what? That's not unity. Yes, it is. Because a thousand churches that are all different, doing what God's called us to do, who respect and love one another, that is unity. Unity is not all meeting together in one place. You know, I was part of a church. Um, I worked there on staff for two years, and we never grew. The church never grew. And the Lord said to me, leave this church. And we left. And we started another church. We never took a single person from that church. But within two years, we had 400 brand new converts in the same city. And the Lord said to me, when you start new churches, you win the lost. People think we must all just be the same and stay in one place. That's not the answer. 
But we've got to keep the respect and the love. We should never speak badly about another Christian. Amen? Can you, can you see how God's heart breaks when I'm speaking to a non-believer and I say, oh, but those, whatever denomination it is, they, they're, not really, they're not really good. Can you see how that just rips the unity apart? Amen? Can I just make a little comment here? There is a, a trend for immature Christians who have very little ministry or very little influence, they grab onto this idea of criticizing other Christians and other Christian leaders, and they think it gives them a platform, and it thinks, they think it makes them important. And they may even say things like, my ministry is to um, e expose the false teachers, or to, to show people how bad some Christians are. And they, they, without that platform, if they weren't on the internet or if they weren't criticizing other Christians, they would have no influence, they would have no importance, they would be nobodies, but because they feel, I can criticize so-and-so. I mean, it, I've seen it in my 20 years of, of ministry, I've seen it again and again and again, where people start criticizing, and it starts off with the really way out preachers, they start criticizing them. But then they start criticizing the middle of the road preachers, and eventually they're criticizing everyone except themselves. Everyone's wrong except me. And you know what? It doesn't build up the body of Christ. And it, it harms the cause of Christ because non-Christians look at that and they say, what on earth are you guys up to? You're so busy fighting each other, you've forgotten about the devil and the lost. You're not trying to win the world or fight the devil, you're just fighting other Christians. Please don't criticize other Christians. Please. In fact, I, whenever I see it on, on the internet, I make a point of saying to the person, please don't do this anymore. Even if that person believes differently to you, it's okay. We're all trying to win the lost for Christ. We may have differences of opinion. We can work with it. We, we put up with things for the sake of unity. Amen? Is that all right? Okay, let me just make sure I've covered everything here. One accord. In the book of Acts... There's this little phrase, they were with one accord. It occurs 12 times in the book of Acts. And every time it occurs, um, well, let me just read you a couple of them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and Acts 2, verse 1, it says they were with one accord, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out. In Acts 2, verse 46, it says they were of one accord, and many were added to them. In Acts 4, 24, they were of one accord, and the Lord poured out His Holy Spirit, and the place was shaken. In Acts 5, verse 12, they were with one accord, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done. Acts 8, verse 6, the multitudes with one accord listened to Philip, and miracles were done. Wherever there's one accord, God pours out His blessing. And that word one accord in the Greek is the word homothumadon, which means homo means together and thumadon means rushing along. Homothumadon, they were rushing along together. They were going somewhere together. Amen? Warnings against division. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brothers, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. 
Titus 3 verse 10, reject or, or kick out a divisive man after you've warned him twice. Proverbs 6 verse 16, these things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And it lists seven things. And the last one is a, a person who sows discord among brethren. Isn't that amazing? So what do I do? What do I do in church if somebody offends me? What do I do in church if somebody speaks about me wrongly or, or is horrible to me or does something wrong to me? What, what do I do? The Bible gives us very clear instructions. I don't have time to go through it in detail now. But in Matthew 18, it's all in the context of forgiveness. Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the chapter where Peter says to Jesus, How many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus says, no, no, 490 times a day. And then Jesus says, remember, there's the servant who got forgiven millions of debt by his master, but he wouldn't forgive a few dollars from his friend. And so the, the master then said, throw him into prison. It's all in the context of forgiveness. And in that chapter, it says, if your brother sins against you, please hear me clearly now. I better read this because it's so important. Matthew 18. We're trying to find out how to have unity in our churches. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Can I say what this is telling you you cannot do? You cannot talk to somebody else about the, the problem. You cannot just keep quiet and nurse a grudge. You cannot nurse bitterness and anger. It says if somebody sins against you, go and tell him just the two of you. Nobody else. If, if somebody comes to you and they say, Sister so-and-so has been so horrible to me because of this, you say to them, you are disobeying the Bible because you're speaking to me instead of to her. Wow, Greg, that's a bit harsh. But you know what? Nobody ever comes straight out like that. They always say, oh, I need prayer. Why do you need prayer? Oh, I'm feeling so low. Why are you feeling so low? Oh, I just feel persecuted. Why do you feel persecuted? Oh, sister so-and-so did this. And they've sucked you in. And the, the gentle beating heart of compassion says, I'll pray for you, my dear. Meanwhile, you're nursing a grudge against sister so-and-so and she never even did anything to you. And you don't even know if that person's telling the truth. And the Bible talks about a root of bitterness that grows up in a church and starts to defile many. You know what it is? It's when you talk to somebody else about a sin instead of talking to the person who did it. Wow. It's a harsh one, isn't it? And then he goes on to say, if they listen to you, you've won your brother over. If he doesn't, you take along someone else with you. You go and speak to him again. If it still doesn't work, eventually you take the whole church, you get the whole church involved. And eventually, if you can't reconcile... What does it say? Oh, just put up with it. Come to church and hate each other. No? He says separate. Separate from each other. Don't be together anymore. Why? Why would he say that? Surely it's better for us to stay together even if we can't forgive each other. No, it's not. Because unity requires us to love and work together and if you hate somebody else in the church and you cannot resolve it or if you have a problem with the leadership of the church and you cannot resolve it 
It's better for you. Oh, you won't believe what I'm going to say. It's better for you to leave. <laughs> it's better to go. You know, I was in a church, working in a church for two years, and there was the leader, the lead uh, pastor was doing some stuff that wasn't good. And I knew about it, and other people were complaining to me about it, and I never, ever, I said to them, don't talk to me, go and talk to him. And eventually, we couldn't resolve it, and I could have taken about 50 people from that church and started another church, easily. They would have followed gladly. You know what? I never, ever spoke against that leader. And I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying because I know that unity, even if there's problems in a church, for, there to, for them to stay together in unity is more important than justice. And that's a shocking statement. Unity is more important than getting justice. So, you might say, you might have a problem with me in the church. You might think I'm, uh, I don't know, spending the money wrong. What do you do? You come to me. You speak to me. I will try and explain and listen to you as best I can. If you think I'm sinning, which may happen, I, I, I don't know of anything that's happening, but it may happen. If you think I'm sinning, your options open to you are to go to our oversight. And I can tell you who that is. It's some pastors in England who will sort it out and I will listen to them. And if they kick me out, I will 100% listen to them. But you do not have the option of keeping quiet and muttering. You don't have the option of speaking to someone else in the church and saying, have you heard? Because it's destroying the unity. Amen. We don't have the option of being like the world, which tries to make factions come onto my side. Have you heard? Let's get together. Let's make a little group. Let's be angry together. Unity is more important than all of those things. Amen? Amen. But now I want to tell you that when there is unity, and I, let me just, before I say that, let me just say that if somebody comes and they're not really 100% with us, they're not sure, we welcome everyone. We will never ever fight against anybody who's just checking us out, who's not sure if they're committed, or they want to come now and again, or they want to go to our church and another church. You, you're missing out because you're not in unity. But we won't, we won't ever uh, be angry with you or, or do anything against you. But if someone is divisive, you know the shepherd... In the Old Testament, Psalm 23, he says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm the little sheep, and the shepherd has a stick. You know who the stick is for? It's for the wolves. But you know what the wolves look like? They look like sheep. The attacks against our unity will not come from the outside. They will always come from the inside. Unity will never be threatened by this ugly big monster from the outside that tries to split our church. Whenever the church is persecuted from the outside, she gets stronger. But division will always come from within people who act like sheep and look like sheep, but the shepherd is the only one who can see that's a wolf, and he will hit them, and I will hit you. If you come and you're not sure if you're committed, if you're not really with us, we love you. We will never hit you. 
But if you come and you try to divide this church, I as the leader with my stick will hit you. Because the unity of the body of Christ is more important than your hurt feelings. Amen? It is. There is nothing more important than the unity of the church. And when we get it, friend, I've, I've had glimpses of it. I've had glimpses of the glory of heaven being poured out when unity occurs. If we get to this place where we say, you know what, as a body of believers, we are committed to each other. That doesn't mean we always agree. It doesn't mean we always think the same. But we're committed to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will talk to each other if there's a problem. We will resolve things. If we cannot resolve, we'll leave and keep our mouths shut because unity, we are committed to unity. When we get to that place, I promise you, we will see people getting saved in this church every week. We will see the power of God in worship like you wouldn't believe. We will see healings and miracles happening like you wouldn't believe. Just like in the book of Acts, when they were of one accord, powerful things always always happened. The dew of Mount Hermon is poured out on little Mount Zion. The oil of heaven is poured out on the head and it rolls down onto the body. When we're in unity, something significant happens. And Jesus put this in the, in the Last Supper so that every time we take the bread, we remember, am I in unity? Am I putting unity above my own personal feelings? Am I at one with this body? Am I committed to unity? And when we do that, blessing, blessing pours out. So let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the words of your prayer that were recorded for us. And I pray, Lord, for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would see that unity, please, Lord. Lord, we want to see it. We want to see the blessing, the Jew of Hermon poured out on our church and on the churches of Jersey, Lord. We want to see the, the lost coming to know you because we love each other and we're mature enough to deal with issues and work them through. I pray that you would help us, please, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I'm going to ask you to make a decision today, please. To decide on unity. To decide where am I on the spectrum? Am I just checking it out? Am I willing to get fully committed? Am I engaged? Or, or where am I? Or maybe you're a divisive person. You, you try to divide people against others. Today is the day for us to decide, Lord, I want to get this right. And if we get it right, we're going to see a difference. So please, would you make a decision and then we're going to sing a couple of worship songs together. I just have a sense that we're going to see some stuff happening this morning, but also tonight at Furnace and in the weeks ahead. So God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry financially by making a donation on the giving page of leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.